Hey, this is Pastor Stephen, uh, back with uh, your weekly podcast, and uh, today I want to talk to you this about things as irresistible as bubble wrap. Things as irresistible as bubble wrap. I mean, surely I'm not the only one who absolutely cannot resist the appeal of bubble wrap. I know my kids can't. Uh, maybe, maybe like you, I buy a lot of things online. And when the packages come and I open the boxes, my kids have already figured out that those boxes often have some form of bubble wrap in them. You know, some of them have the little sheets with all the little bubbles, and some of them have the, the big, large, single bubbles. Um, but regardless, they know there's something in there they can pop and uh, stomp on and whatever. And so they come running to get the bubble wrap. Um, and, and play all kinds and play, play with it, pop it like crazy. And, and truthfully, I'm no better. I want some of that bubble wrap too. And so like, we'll, we'll grab those little sheets of, of bubble wrap and together we'll race to see who can pop all the bubbles, uh, to the middle first. Um, we'll, we'll throw it on the ground and, um, see who can stomp the loudest pop or the most, the longest lasting pop because we got so many bubbles in one stomp and we'll, we'll make obstacle courses with it and just go crazy with it. And even at my office, when I get packages at the office, I pause to pop my bubble wrap. And sometimes I think to myself, I should take this home and share with my kids. And then I come to my senses. I'm like, I'm not sharing with anyone if I don't have to. I know, I'm a terrible person. Y'all better pray for me. Uh, but uh, this evening, we're going to be in chapter 8, Ecclesiastes chapter 8. And just as a quick reminder, Ecclesiastes is all about man's search for meaning, as specifically experienced by Solomon. He's looked for meaning in everything, and he's journaled about all of it. Looked for, looked for meaning in everything from the vehicles he drives the house that he lives in, the house that he vacations to, to the thread count of the sheets he sleeps on. He's looked to the gourmet quality of the food he eats, the career he pours himself into, his boats, his babes, his booze. He has looked everywhere. And he keeps coming back to this phrase, meaningless, meaningless, or vanity, vanity, empty, empty. Essentially, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Um, sure, he has said that some things have meaning at first. They're great for a minute, like when it was new, just purchased, just purchased, and then it got scratched, or came out, or they came out with a newer model. Or I just lay in bed, and all of a sudden it hit me, like, is this all I'm living for? Or will anyone remember me when I'm gone? And oh my goodness, I am gonna die. And who's going to get my stuff then? And will they take good care of the inheritance that I leave them? And what will any of it mean if it all gets squandered and eventually my legacy is gone and my memory is gone? And so uh, it's kind of a depressing book at times. And there's some repeats of themes. And I think some folks are probably wondering when it's going to perk up and... Uh, it's not really going to perk up today, to be honest, but as I've said before, I think God put, has preserved 
um, his story, every single part of it, for a reason. And, um, and this is part of the story that he's preserved. And so I think he, he has, has preserved it for us to learn from it. So um, hang on and uh, keep listening and asking the Spirit to open his word to you. Um, and, you know, we have already seen Solomon does find meaning in his quest. And Ecclesiastes uh, records everything he learned on the way, and what it records specifically about uh, the answer is that all meaning is wrapped up in knowing God and living for Him. Okay, so Solomon does find meaning. I mean, there are there is good news here, but he's just being really honest about life apart from God, and that can be depressing. Uh, some might even say it's hell. Um, so this time, though, I want to give you four things of which you could say resistance is futile, just like trying to resist popping bubble wrap. When we look at Ecclesiastes chapter 8, that's kind of what Solomon is saying. There's just some things in life that you cannot avoid, mm -hmm. and they are the reality that we live in. Um, and so we should um, adjust our lives to deal with those realities. Uh, so four things that you that resistance is futile. You cannot resist, first of all, the boss. So let's read Ecclesiastes 8, verses 2 through 4. It says, Obey the king's command, I say, because you took an oath before God. Or as another translation says, Since you vowed to God that you would. Don't try to avoid doing your duty, and don't stand with those who plot evil, for the king can do whatever he wants. His command is backed by great power. No one can resist or question it. Okay, so Solomon's saying something that you probably know and a reality that you live in every day. You're always under the authority of someone. Always. From the day you're born. Parents, teachers, coaches, supervisors, department heads, managers, security guards. And isn't it funny because aren't the lowliest of authorities always the ones that are most like um, gung-ho about their authority? Like those security guards can't do anything. And man, they, but they are serious about their jobs. And I'm glad they are. But uh, law enforcement, laws, judges, mayors, governors, presidents, queens, kings, and on and on the list goes. From the day we're born, we're under authority. Now, uh, authority is wielded a bit differently today in most places in the world, and certainly in the U.S. than it was in Solomon's day. In Solomon's day, kings had absolute authority. Their scepters and signets were wielded as fear-inducing symbols of their authority. Like, you, if you entered the king's presence without permission to do so, particularly in the throne room, if he did not extend his scepter to you, he would instead extend it to the to the guards who would take you to prison or to execution. Um, so everything, everything required decorum, honor, respect. There's absolute authority there. The signet of the king was an absolute word for every part of his kingdom. And to ignore anything sealed with the king's signet could be certain death or at least imprisonment. Um, so there's not a lot of um, examples of that kind of authority in our in a society that so highly values freedom, right? Uh, America values freedom, 
Uh, but perhaps one place you can still get a kind of a picture of the authority in Solomon's day would be um, in an American courtroom. Okay, so the courtroom actually mimics very closely remnants of the monarchy that the pilgrims and settlers left behind in Europe. Um, the judge's bench is kind of like a throne. His gavel is like a scepter. Um, her robe is like royal clothing. And when you enter the courtroom, or when the judge enters the courtroom, rather, all rise and give honor to the judge. And even traffic court is very serious, right? Like, this is something that happened to me. I had a moving violation a long time ago. And so I go to court, and you know how it is when you when you have, like, a driving violation. There's bunches of people in there, and they go in alphabetical order or whatever. So I'm waiting my turn in court, and they call up a different young man. And he approaches the judge's bench, and the judge begins by saying, Where are you from, sir? And uh, the, the young man said, uh, Pardon, Your Honor, what do you mean? And uh, the judge looks at him very sternly and says, I know you're not from around here if you think it's okay to wear a hat in a courtroom, especially my courtroom, or did your mother just not raise you right? And I mean, everybody was perked up at that point. You could have heard a pin drop. It was so intense. And I just, I, I was scared to death about my little moving violation. The whole thing kind of seemed designed to show how small everyone else in the courtroom was in the shadow of the judge's authority. And Solomon is saying in, here in these verses that we're all in the shadow of that authority. And he continues in verse 5, he says, Whoever obeys the king's command will come to no harm. Those who obey him will not be punished. Those who are wise will find a time and a way to do what is right. For there is a time and a way for everything, even when a person is in trouble. So he says it's why it'd be wise to obey the law. And even if you've disobey the law, or if you've gone out of order, it'd be wise to find the right time to get things in order. And, uh, you know, he does say that uh, some use their power to do evil. Uh, there is such a thing as injustice, and there is such a thing as law enforcement and judicial members acting unjustly. Let's be really clear about that. Uh, as Christians, we need to not sweep under the rug and chastise those calling for judgment, especially when we've not walked a mile in their shoes, uh, or calling for justice, rather, especially when we've not walked a mile in their shoes and spent time hearing their stories without telling them what they should have done differently and just empathizing with them. But still, generally speaking, if you obey authority, you will avoid harm. You will avoid punishment. If you perform your job with focus and excellence, you will avoid the ire of your bosses, okay? Uh, there's another problem in the world besides injustice, and that is from the Garden of Eden to now, blame has been so much easier than simply taking responsibility for our own actions that undermine authority because we are rebellious by nature, right? I mean, you don't teach kids to rebel. Uh, some of you know my, my daughter, Macy, and she is a princess, and I... I am just really intent on instilling in her value because I know the way the enemy t attacks um, 
a person's value, but especially a woman's value and self-worth. And, and so I build her up and I speak blessing over her. Um, and, and so she's a princess and she, and, and she knows it. And girl, does she have a rebellious streak in her? And I did not teach her that. Um, because we're hardwired this way. It's like she knows, like I'm instilling in her value and in uh, begin, and she's beginning to believe her value. And so she is stubborn as all get out. She can just, uh, and, 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 and stubborn in rebellion even, that she will just decide she is not interested in what mom and dad are saying or asking her to do. And she's not going to do it no matter what. We're hardwired this way, right? We're hardwired this way. And as parents, we're trying to teach our kids that it is in their best interest to obey. We're trying to teach our kids that it is in their best interest to obey. That life, the, the, the life in general, is usually better when we obey those put in authority over us. We're teaching them to respect and honor um law enforcement and to obey the law even when we don't like the law, right? And Solomon says the same is true when you're grown and you no longer live with your parents and you have some freedom and authority for yourself. It is in your best interest to obey authority. Life will be better when we obey authority. And you might say, well, what if I don't like what the authorities do with their authority? Because that's a possibility. But I'd say Paul addresses this, at least in part, in Romans chapter 13. Uh, under an oppressive government, Paul says, everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. It is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience, because of the spirit God has given us. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Okay, so... Um, I, uh, first of all, let me just say this, Christians, we can be so hypocritically selective about how we apply the scriptures. And what I mean by that is when your political party is in office, you love to apply Romans 13. You tell everybody you, that's your president, you better submit to him, God says so, God gave him authority, etc., etc. But suddenly, those we for, conveniently forget about those scriptures when our political party is not in office. Uh, we can be so hypocritical in the way we apply the scriptures when we say, uh, you know, God says do not judge whenever someone's directing a judgment at us. But then when we apply a judgment to another person's life, we all of a sudden remember all the scriptures that... Uh, that say that we ought to hold one another accountable and that we ought to speak the truth uh, in in love, mind you, but still speak the truth. And so we, we are so hypocritical in the way we apply the scriptures. So as you listen to this, don't think about 
those you disagree with or those that you take issue with and how they need to obey the governing authority, you need to think about when there is a governing authority that does things with your tax money that you don't agree with and and when there is a governing authority who believes and has ideologies that you do not agree with, that God has still appointed that authority, that God is supreme over all authority, which means then that it's not really about, uh, that, that our faith is not really about specifically what that authority does, because our faith is in the kingdom of God, and in the kingdom of God, Jesus is king, which means we can trust his hand to be working, whether the elected officials seem to be on Jesus' side or not. And as Christians, what we're called to do is, is to not let our relationship to authority unnecessarily affect our witness. Instead, we are to pray for our leaders, submit to their authority, and work for change that reflects God's kingdom with a peaceful spirit. So within the, the, legal, within, within the legal rights that you have as, as an American Christian, vote for change. But don't go out on Facebook and blast the political leaders that you don't like or the uh, political ideologies that you disagree with. All those loudspeaker uh, infomercials that you post do is further entrench you against them instead of positioning you with an open arms for embrace to inter to lead and introduce somebody to Jesus, okay? Okay. Uh, we need to, when, when leaders are in office that we agree with, we submit to them quietly and we thank God for, um, for leadership that uh, we believe reflects his kingdom. And when leaders are in office that we don't agree with, we pray for them just the same. We ask God to, change, to soften our heart towards them, to help us to submit to their authority and lead our lives with honor and respect and not with loud mouths about our opinions and and work for change in a quiet way, in a peaceful way, okay? And, and here's the thing. You can say, well, what about this? What about that? Now, I will just tell you, I can't imagine there are many exceptions given the conditions that Paul is writing from under the governance of Nero, who's burning his brothers and sisters alive as torches for the city, who's using them as entertainment in the Colosseum, who's actively slandering them and blaming them, blaming the Christians for his failures as Caesar and for the Roman Empire's disintegration, okay? And Paul's saying to these Christians, respect and submit to the authority. Don't draw unneeded attention, negative attention to your witness by being rebellious and loud and rambunctiously against the governing authorities, whether you agree with them or not. And, and furthermore, we can look back at Israelite history and we can see that the prophets who simultaneously call out Israelite kings and pagan kings also tell the Israelites very clearly that God is using these pagan kings, these pagan authorities in their lives for great greater good over the long term. Maybe it's not good now, and maybe it wasn't God's first choice, uh, but given the circumstances, given the disobedience of, of God's people, given the lack of faith of God's people, and given his longer-range plan for redemption that we cannot see in full or even begin to understand, 
he has appointed these leaders at this time. And so that when there are leaders that you disagree with, they, they can be used by God, just like Xerxes was, just like Nebuchadnezzar was, um, just like Darius was. Uh, there are kings through Scripture again and again, pagan kings, who God uses for his glory. So loud complaints and loud boycotts and all of the things of the like, they only blur the lines of otherness. To, you know, to be holy just means to be other. It just means to be different than. And so when we are shouting and screaming and arguing about our beliefs the same way the world is, we blur the lines. We taint our otherness, our holiness before the watching world. So when it comes to authority, when it, when it comes to authority, there you can't resist it. Resistance is futile. We are called to submit, respect, and honor even when we don't agree. So I said there aren't many exceptions. So, but there are, but there is maybe one. So, what exception is there to obedient, to being obedient, being obedient to governing authorities, if any? And the only one that I can find scripturally or think of otherwise, is that we disobey governing authorities when you personally are being told directly. It's not, it's not when you think that it might go there, like we, like we often do. Well, if this official gets elected and they enact this policy, then it's the end of our nation as we know it. And it's the end of, no, God is still king. God is still Lord of the universe. Jesus is still king. It's when you are being told directly to do something counter to Christ, counter to the kingdom of God, counter to uh, God's glory. Like in Acts chapter 5, for example, when the disciples are brought before the governing authorities and they're told not to preach the gospel anymore. It's there, it's there in that kind of circumstance that we see Peter and John say, we must obey God rather than men. Acts chapter 5, verse 29. Or, what, or maybe another example would be in Daniel, chapters 1 and 3. In chapter 1, Daniel is asked to eat the king's food, which is food that is against God's law and um, is a part of a brainwashing of the identity and purpose that God has given his people. And so he says, he's, he said, it says in Daniel chapter 1 that Daniel resolved not to defile himself. And he, he went to his supervisor, he made a deal with him and he put his faith in God and he said, I'm not going to do this. And trust me, if you let me obey my God, it'll work out well for us and for you by extension. Or in Daniel chapter three, Daniel's buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, find themselves in, in a circumstance where they are being told to bow down and worship this statue of Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they refuse to bow down when all the instruments play. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar's made aware of this. He, goes, he comes to them and he says, Hey, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, what God will save you when I throw you into that fiery furnace? And their response is, Doesn't matter if he saves us or not. We will not worship anything or anyone else but Yahweh. Okay, so... Uh, when you are, when you personally are being told directly to do something counter to the kingdom of God, counter to God's law, counter to Christ, that is when you um, openly rebel against governing authority. Uh, here's a practical example. When I, in Monette, Missouri, where I was first um, stationed as a minister, 
there's a business called Jack Henry and Associates. It's a Fortune 500 company that uh, does bank software. And um, the it's a long story, but the culture of the business is very fast and loose. That's kind of how Jack Henry wanted it. And um, so they're, they're well known for being a great place to work. Uh, they treat their employees really, really well. Lots of perks and benefits. And, uh, but we have, and we had several men in our church who uh, worked there. And uh, a common story amongst these men and many other Christian men in the community who worked for Jack Henry was that they were put in compromising positions to their faith where, for example, when you went on business trips, it was common for business meetings to take place at strip clubs and cabarets and uh, other types of mature entertainment businesses, so to speak. And many men talked about how they had to decide, would they stand up for their faith and say, I will not do that. Um, no matter what it costs me. And I remember one man saying, telling me that he, under, under the conviction of the Spirit, went to his boss and said, transfer me or fire me, but I cannot and will not do that. It is a conflict of interest in uh, my faith in God and uh, my faithfulness to him and his principles. Okay, so uh, that would be an example of when we rebel against authority. All right, secondly, resistance is futile, to the buzzer. You cannot resist the buzzer. Verses 7 and 8. Since no man knows the future, who can tell him what is to come? Uh, how can people avoid what they don't know is going to happen? None of us can hold back our spirit from departing. None of us has the power to prevent the day of our death. There is no escaping that obligation, that dark battle, and in the face of death, wickedness will certainly not rescue the wicked. Okay, so the buzzer, you can't avoid death. You can't avoid the, eh, your time's up, uh, your spirit is departing. Death is an obligation, the scripture says. Um, in fact, if do you want to know what job is recession-proof in the age of COVID and any other age? The funeral business. The funeral business. People will always be dying and needing help with funeral arrangements. It's appointed unto man once to die and then to be judged. We're all going to die. Eh, the buzzer is going to come for all of this, all of us, signaling the end of life. And there is no amount of finagling and bargaining that anyone can do to avoid it. Now, that's about all I'm going to say about that. Solomon's dealt with this at length in other places, and he'll bring it up again as we continue through the book. Um, so I'm not going to say much else about it except this that the buzzer is why it's crucial to find meaning. It's crucial to discover what is our time on earth all about. And that's a big part of what's spurring Solomon's thought is, is this all there is? And if not, what's after? And what? how do I invest in what's after? And that is crucial to understanding meaning. It's why Solomon again and again returns to Meaning is found in knowing God and being in Him, who is eternal, who is outside of space and time, and not bound by death to a frail body. All right, so you cannot resist the boss, you cannot resist the buzzer. Thirdly, you cannot resist the bummer. You cannot resist the bummer. Verse 9, I have thought deeply about all that goes on here under the sun where people have the power to hurt each other. 
I have seen wicked people buried with honor. Yet they were the very ones who frequented the temple, and now they are praised in the same city where they committed their crimes. This too is meaningless. When a crime is not punished quickly, people feel it is safe to do wrong. So the unfortunate thing about what's going to happen between your birth and your buzzer is that a lot of things aren't going to go the way that we think it should or how we would like for it to go or how we would plan for it to happen. And so, so one way that Solomon describes that is he describes attending a funeral where a bad person is honored as a good one. And he says they went to church even, pretending to keep up appearances, even as they committed crimes that same day in that very same city in which they just attended church. And he says now this funeral of honor is being held in that same city he committed his crimes in, and in the same church he attended hypocritically. And he says all kinds of people see this, and they are themselves encouraged by this to do wrong, because they look at it and they say, man, that, that guy did everything wrong, didn't ever hurt all kinds of people, and here he is being celebrated. So that is the path uh, to take. We should all be like this guy. Uh, more bummers, he continues in verse 14. He says, there's something else meaningless that occurs on earth. Righteous men who, who, righteous men who get what the wicked deserve and wicked men who get the, what the righteous deserve. This too, I say, is meaningless. And so he, he basically just asks, this age-old question, like, why do the good die young? Why do bad things happen to good people? The short answer is we live in a broken world in which everyone lives for themselves, and the collateral damages are often those trying to be good in a bad place. But that's why the kingdom of God is good news, is because Jesus is making all things new. And in that place, the last will be first. So those doing good and getting trampled on and left behind will be first. He is going to flip the script. Um, but still, before we really start to answer the question that why do bad things happen to good people, we have to start with an admission of what we learned in the last teaching in this series, and that is that no one is good. No one is good. Everyone is a sinner because the standard is perfect, and we all fall short of that standard. We say it all the time in our culture, nobody's perfect. Don't judge me. Nobody's perfect. And if there is any good in you at all, then you will be really honest and admit that you are not very good. I'll start. Listen, I am not very good. I'm not just saying that for the purposes of this message. I am not a very good person in my heart, in my motive, in even my in, in, in the times when nobody is looking. I am not a very good person not on my own. I'm not, not naturally good. In fact, think, here's just a random fact, okay? I read, read the other day that the Holiday Inn reports an average of 500,000 towels stolen every year. That's just one hotel chain. 500,000 towels stolen every year. And some of you might be like, that, that's, there's nothing wrong with that. And I'm telling you that that is short of the standard called perfect, okay? This, this is just a silly way of realizing there are tons of things that we don't even think of as wrong because we are so wrong in our hearts. We are so self-centered and wicked that we can't even admit all the things that are wrong in our lives. 
And that's before we even start talking about our true motives in our hearts, right? Even the good things we do, oftentimes there are less than honorable motives. Like we help people begrudgingly just because we want to keep up appearances. We want people to think we're good. We help people begrudgingly because we know that they uh, can help us out in some way. Uh, they, that you know, they have a truck, they have this, they have that, they, they can loan me this. And so we help them so that we'll be in their good graces to borrow what we need to borrow or to get what we need to get from them when the time comes, right? Even our motives for the quote unquote good things we do are not good because there really are no good people. And therefore, bad things don't happen to good people. Bad things simply happen to all kinds of, to all people. Bad things simply happen to all people, okay? The good and the, the quote-unquote good and the quote-unquote bad. Just bad things happen in general, and they happen to all people. And so the better question might be, I mean, really the only, only question then is if you have put your faith and trust in Jesus, if you, if you do follow Jesus and believe in God, the better question might be is why do bad things happen to God's people? Why do, why do bad things happen to God's people? If God's in charge, then why do bad things happen to God's people? And, and boy, that's a whole nother message. But if you started following Jesus because you thought you'd have no more trouble, then you started following him without reading or studying much about him at all because Jesus was poor and he was murdered. <laughs> so to follow Jesus, I mean, he, he even said that. He said to people who came after him, he said, hey, just FYI, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but I don't have any place to lay my head. Hey, just FYI, count the cost before you follow me because people count a cost before they build a building and people count a cost before they wage a war. They, they, they count the, the cost, the money cost of building a building. They count the possibility, the risk of dying before they wage a war, right? So count the cost before you follow me. Follow me. He says it's going to be costly. So just decide if you want to make that investment before you follow after me. And even yet, Jesus lived a life that compelled every kind of person from every kind of lifestyle. The rich and the poor were around him. The educated and the uneducated were around him. All kinds of people were around Jesus. They were compelled by his life. And so maybe bad things aren't as bad as we think they are. And again, that's a whole nother message. But we follow Jesus not because of because he gives us no trouble right now, but because of something more lasting than temporary pleasure. And that is an assurance that he will never leave us and forsake us. An assurance that Almighty God loves us and is for us. An assurance that no matter what happens in this world, it isn't the end of the story. Uh, an assurance that he is infinitely good and that we can share in his goodness, right? And so what we see, though, here in this passage is Solomon is kind of teetering back and forth between the two realities. He's, he's teetering back and forth. On the one hand, you've got the boss, the bummer, the buzzer, but on the other hand, you've got our final point, the bill. You cannot resist the bill. And so now Solomon's going to teeter back over to faith, back from doubt to faith. He's, he's processing through his doubt as he observes the world, and now he's teetering back into faith. You got the boss, the bummer, the buzzer, and now you have the bill. bill. Verse 12, 
He says, although a wicked man commits a hundred crimes and still lives a long time, even though a person sins a hundred times and still lives a long time, I know that those who fear God will be better off. Those who fear God will be better off. The wicked will not prosper, for they do not fear God. Their days will never grow long like the evening shadows. They'll never experience eternity. Okay? So, so here he teeters back into faith. He says God is still in charge and justice will come. You cannot resist the bill. Eventually, you thought you were getting away with it, but the bill will come due and the wicked will not prosper. Only those who know God and live in awe and reverence of him will uh, be able to enjoy eternity without with the cost already paid. The cost that no one could pay is already paid in Jesus Christ. And so I want to kind of close with this. The, discor the discourse of this chapter shows a clash of faith and doubt, okay? Like if you look at the rest of the passage, we see Solomon and he says, um, you know, so I, I just say enjoy life because nothing is better for a man under the sun than to eat and drink and be glad. And then joy will accompany him in his work all the days of this of the life God has given him under the sun. So he says, he says, I command that you just recognize God has given you this life and enjoy the good that he's given you and take the bad with the good because he's in charge. And, and then he concludes with this in verses 16 and 17. He says, in my search for wisdom and in my observation of people's burdens here on earth, I discovered that there is ceaseless activity day and night. And I realized that no one can discover everything God is doing under the sun. Not even the wisest people discover everything, no matter what they claim. In other words, we can't grasp all of this. Not even the wisest people grasp it all. Not even the people who are busy with everything grasp it all. And, and, and Solomon has reason to say that he has experienced it all. That he might know it all. But he's saying, nope, not even me. I don't know it all. There is no way to grasp it all. So, um, so, so here's what we kind of have. Solomon is overwhelmed by his world. He's disgusted by its leaders, and he's perplexed by his God. But still, he acknowledges the sovereignty, the, the supremacy of God and of his goodness, even while the world he lives in leaves him depressed with its misery, folly, and wickedness. And sometimes that stuff causes him to doubt the goodness of God. Yet what he says here is all I can do is rely on God to effect change. He shows faith by stopping short of the conclusions of his deliberations. Okay, the conclusions of his deliberations are that God should act and he doesn't. So maybe he's not good. But he stops short of that. He doesn't accuse God of folly or evil. It, it seems logically that God might be to blame for the ills of the world, yet he never blames God openly. Instead, claiming he claims his own inability to make sense of the world. He would prefer to admit the limits of his own perception and give God the benefit of the doubt. And do you see how that is the way it should be? If there is a being that is greater than us, right? If there is a God then who has limitations, us or God? And so Solomon says, okay, I don't know it. I'm willing to recognize I don't know everything because I am not God. 
I don't understand everything, and that's irritating. But just because I don't understand it doesn't mean that God is not good. Okay? And this is good news for me anyway, because I always struggle with the idea of letting go and letting God. But here we see Solomon. This is not that's not what faith is about for him necessarily, okay? He's it's not about expressing an ironclad confidence in God. We see him processing through these doubts that he has. It's not about having all the answers, but instead it is about admitting, even with utter exasperation and doubt, that we mere mortals do not have the wherewithal to fathom what God is or is not doing. That's faith, is to believe that God is greater than we are and believe that God is gooder than we are. I know that's not a word, but you get the point. Doubt is almost an irresistible force, kind of like bubble wrap. It's hard not to run to it. it there, we almost find a strange comfort in it, even though it simultaneously causes turmoil for us. Doubt is an, is an almost irresistible force. And the good news, I think, is that the Christian faith is not about maintaining heroic levels of confidence or having all the answers or appearing spiritually invincible. The Christian faith is rather about a person, Jesus Christ. He saves us. He is our security. He is our anchor. He is our proof that despite the world being in its current state and our lack of answers, that God has demonstrated his grace and favor to us. Okay? Now, that doesn't mean that anyone is absolved of their responsibility for wrongdoing. That's what Solomon says, is that wickedness will not release those who practice it, that the bill will come due. So Solomon doesn't absolve himself or us of responsibility for our wrongdoing. And he's quite the opposite. He says, our hearts are ignorant, they're reckless, they're selfish, and they're flagrantly unjust. He calls that out and declares that though the world doesn't make sense and wickedness often seems rewarded, the bill will come due for wickedness. And so I just want to ask you, what's your solution for your own wicked and broken heart? Are you, like Solomon, searching for meaning in all kinds of things under the sun on earth? Things within space and time. And can you hear Solomon pleading with you, Hey, I have already explored all those things, and they're all meaningless, and they're all burdened by the brokenness of this world. But there is one thing. God is sovereign and God is good and good things come to those who fear God. If not now, then at least in the end. Have you? Wisdom is, what wisdom is, have, have you recognized that wisdom is actually understanding our limitations and instead surrendering them to a God who has no limitations? H have you understood that, that surrender is not weakness, that confession is, an admission of, 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 of the wickedness in our heart is not weakness, it's actually strength. Paul said that when I am weak, then I am strong, because, because Jesus told him that his power is made perfect in Paul's weakness, that, that we see God's power most perfectly when we contrast 
it with our weakness. So, so as we close, I just want to ask, do you need to put faith in or renew your faith in the God from whom all authority comes from? Did, did you just need to know today that doubt is not wrong? The feelings of doubt that we have are not wrong. Doubt is, is a strong place to still uh, profess faith. And so um, I'm going to pray, and I just want to encourage you to share your doubt with God, to confess your limitations, and to declare your willingness to follow Him and trust Him. Heavenly Father, just thank you for this word, and I pray that you'd help us that claim to be your followers, to be good citizens of our world, regardless of who the authorities are and how much we like them and agree with them. Uh, Lord, I pray that we would be preparing for when our buzzer comes, that we would be living with the end in mind. And Lord, I pray that we would be looking at your world uh, with a thoughtful eye and not just taking the pat answers, but uh, asking the hard questions and being open to the doubts in our hearts so that we can confront them with your greatness and your truth so that we can bathe them in your grace and your mercy and be set free um, believing that that is enough. Uh, Lord, help us to submit to your authority and to confess our shortcomings and limitations and to rest in you and depend on you to infect change not only in our world but in us in jesus name we pray amen